What's happening, everybody? I'm back again, episode two. Looking forward to continuing where I left off last week. I want to thank everyone for the love they showed in supporting episode one and the launch of this new endeavor for me. As you can imagine, with anything new, it can be nerve-wracking as you wait to get feedback from those you love and those whose opinions you value. So I appreciate those who immediately took the time to share their thoughts um, and offer kind words. I also want to thank those who quickly volunteered their expertise to be guests. So just keep in mind that if you reached out, I will certainly be reaching back to take advantage of opportunities to have conversations with those in my village who you know, have great things to share and can add to the discussion. So this week, we're going to hop in to the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It is something that is forefront in our society these days, most notably because of Ron DeSantis running for president and, you know, what is a hallmark of his platform, the war on woke. Um, most recently, Mr. DeSantis, Governor DeSantis making news um, because Florida is effectively not teaching um, an AP psychology course because of the way that it addresses and deals with race. As you can imagine, this is troubling, but it continues a conversation that is being had in schools about what uh, will be the role of diversity, equity, inclusion, popularly known as DEI moving forward. There's such a great history um, that to me as someone who practices and is in the diversity, equity, inclusion space, it's, it's really um, a groundbreaking time. And I look forward to these conversations continuing and us can finding a way uh, to move forward. You know, when you think about diversity, equity, inclusion in this country, you think about milestone moments like the Brown versus the Board of Education decision, uh, 54, which set the groundwork for the integration of schools. And that was largely what was considered DEI, you know, up and through the 80s. You know, the idea that parents and advocacy groups um, and students were pushing for acceptance and the ability to even enroll both in private and public institutions. And then when you get to the 80s, you start to see the rise of affinity spaces. So, you know, those who've been historically underrepresented in schools, uh, black and brown students, uh, South Asian students, uh, Asian students um, from different countries are now being accepted into schools and are asking for and carving out space to meet, to gather, to share amongst each other. And those who were advisors to those groups largely became your first DEI practitioners, largely based you know, on their life experience or some connection they may have had um, to the groups that they may, you know, were representing. And then moving forward into the 90s and the aughts, you see schools making sense of those groups and how those groups fit within a school community and developing diversity, equity, inclusion mission statements so that they can put those you know, on the website and let you know if you're applying to the school, this is how we view things. These became important because 
if you were going to continue to increase the critical mass of students of color in your school, applying parents wanted to know. And it was important for schools to be able to say to all those, uh, whether in the alumni community or in the present community, this is where we're going. And so you saw these mission statements uh, proliferate. You saw the advisors of affinity groups, in many cases, becoming the first DEI professionals in their school communities. So now moving into the senior admin role and being part of senior admin teams to implement DEI, not just in the affinity group space, but throughout, you know, helping faculties understand and, you know, plan diversity workshops and trainings, um, looking at curriculum, looking at programming throughout the school, you know, and whether you know, it was causing undue harm to students. Because as you got into uh, the aughts and up through you know, 2010, it was one thing to increase the population of students of color on campus. It then became another whole issue to make sure that they felt a part of the community and that they were not being harmed in the process of matriculating through a school. It's largely why you see in some cases, diversity, equity, inclusion with a B on the end of it at some schools with the B standing for belonging. And now here we are three years after, you know, uh, the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Mike Brown, while we were, you know, sheltered in place during COVID, really forcing schools to think about how they continue to do this. Again, what's exciting to me is that through the course of this, the role has become more professionalized. No longer can you really become a diversity practitioner in a school simply based on your life experience. Uh, there is enough research. Uh, there are certificate programs, there are degree programs popping up. So that if you're going to do this work now, you have to be serious about it. And that to me is exciting because it therefore makes it much more uniform how People come into the space, the language that they have, the requisite knowledge that they bring to the table um, so that they're able to share that and bring that to the communities and, and move them forward accordingly. And so the final piece of this that I want to share before we take a break is that it's it's been personal for me and that I've lived all of it. So I remember being a first year teacher fresh out of college and being asked by my division head not only to you know understand the roles of my job and those responsibilities but to also take on the mentorship um young black middle schooler um, and i was working in the elementary division but to take on the role of mentoring a young black male middle schooler who was struggling um and the school felt like having you know a black man on campus that he could talk to every now and again would be beneficial to him. And that was my introduction to diversity, equity, inclusion work. And it's gone from there. And I've seen the hiring um, process that schools undertake when they were hiring uh, DEI professionals. And I've seen the development of mission statements and I've seen schools think about um, how and where DEI professionals fit within a senior structure. What is their role for admin? What is their, uh, responsibility to the head of school. And I look forward to seeing where we're going. 
And so today we have a special guest that's coming in for office hours. My colleague Janine Jones will be joining us. So after this break, we'll get right into that interview. This is our first office hours on taking notes, and I am excited to have my friend, my colleague, somebody even say my work wife on as our first guest in office hours. This means that you won't hear a stodgy and, and robotic interview. It'll be regular talk from both me and her. I admire her because she is a lawyer by training and was a very accomplished lawyer and then took a pivot to come into the school world as an admissions coordinator and then took another pivot and became a DEI practitioner, rising the ranks and is now an assistant head of school for DEI. And she's gonna correct me on that title um, at Harvard Westlake. But without further ado, the incomparable, my friend, Janine Jones, welcome Janine to Taking Notes with John Carroll. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you, Dr. John Carroll, for having me on as a guest. I'm excited for the conversation. Of course. And in that in, that introduction, I did forget one of the most important things for the sake of knowing Ms. Janine Jones. She's a proud, the proudest, I might say, I know, Spelman graduate. So we will make sure that the honor of all HBCUs, especially the great Spelman, is maintained. Uh, in this conversation. Absolutely. I am a proud Spellman woman. Excellent. And we might even get into some of that, depending on how this goes. So first question for you, Janine, is that now that we are getting ready to get into another school year, what are you focused on as you prepare to begin another year as a DEI practitioner and, and leading the mission in our team uh, at Harvard Westlake? Well, it's interesting because, you know, it evolves over the years uh, where your focus lies, especially with diversity, equity, and inclusion, because it's really important to be responsive to the needs of your community in a particular moment in time. So what's applicable for the, or what's necessary for our DEI work and the focus of our DEI work at Harvard-Westlake in the 2020. 2023-2024 school year may not be what the needs are of an independent school down the street or across the country. And so I, what we do, and I'm quite proud of every year, is that we really look at the needs of our community as it relates to a particular moment in time. And so for us, because we are entering into our eighth year of having a formal office of formal office of diversity, equity, and inclusion, we've evolved over the years. And so we're somewhat beyond the basics of what I refer to as DEI 101. And so most everybody in our community has a, a deep familiarity with the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion now, and especially as it shows up in our community. And so we are taking a couple of different paths this year. And so my focus is going to be on a couple of different things. One is the elimination of hate. 
at Harvard Westlake and in the world beyond when we send our students off into the world. We want to make sure that they are able to contribute to that, to the elimination of hate, especially along any lines of difference um, and lines of identity. We're going to be looking at our mental health and wellness and especially the intersection of belonging and how students and members of our community feel a true sense of belonging. It's easy to say the words, to slap them up on a website, but it's much harder to actually walk that walk. Um, the talking of that talk is easy, but the walking of that walk, especially when you're dealing with uh, 12 to 18 year olds, so seventh graders to 12th graders, as we deal with on an annual basis, is um, something that's really important. And then the the third piece that I don't know it that it's a primary focus, but it's certainly something that I'm thinking about is the impact of the affirmative action cases out of the United States Supreme Court this summer, and just really paying attention to how that may impact us, even though it's not directly applicable to us as uh, an independent school in California. I love that. And of course, as a member of your team now for the last five years or so, you know, we we have these You've discussions. You've been a member the whole time, you know, even well, though you formal, didn't have right? Because <laughs> there was the times when we were just plotting, you know, as co-conspirators before there was an actual office. And then now there's like post office time. So correct, yes. Correct. Um, and of course, you know, we tend to be on the same page in terms of all of these things. So I'm curious for you, you know, given that you know that what makes our job as practitioners challenging and you in particular as the lead is that we often are faced with people who misunderstand the placement of DEI or the purpose of DEI or the need for DEI. And I think we've done a great job in our spot and, and you know, with our community of practitioners, helping people understand why. What do you think continues to be the biggest misconception people have about DEI and why it is something that should be, you know, happening um, in all schools? You know, it's, it's an interesting question. And I think the biggest misconception comes from an intentional weaponization of the EI. And so there are people who refuse to see it for what it really is. So when you think about I've now started using the words diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I try not to. I still fall into that trap sometimes. I try not to say DEI because it's easier to weaponize it when you talk about it as DEI versus actually saying the words. And so when you talk to people about the value of diversity, most people, at least in the Harvard-Westlake community, but most people in the United States can understand at one level the value of diversity. The devil is always in the details in terms of how you achieve that diversity, but in our community, at least, we are in a place where most people who engage with us on a daily basis and who choose to send their children to Harvard Westlake believe in the value of diversity. When you talk about equity, most people believe in equity. Some people still get stumped, up, stumped on equity versus equality and really understanding the difference. But when you talk about equity in a way that resonates 
with the individual with whom you're speaking to, they generally understand what you mean by equity. And then most people, when they're sending their children to a school, understand the value of inclusion. And so they understand what it means to be included, but the people get tripped up in terms of the details and how you achieve those goals of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I, I think we have to talk about it very candidly that we are victims of the politicization of DEI in this country. And so if people are able to have actual conversations about what diversity means, what equity means, what inclusion means, I think we're going to be much better off. Love it, love it, love it. And I'm now taking your cue that we will be saying diversity, equity, inclusion. I'm going to try. I know I'm going to mess up. saying DEI. <laughs> yeah. But it's funny, even in that, because, you know, we have seen words be co-opted, you know, even with, you know, when we have the best intentions for them and used, like you say, for weaponization. So it'll be interesting to see, even if in using the words, there's a way uh, that those who would uh, dispute or reject diversity, equity, inclusion efforts would find a way to do it even within that framework. But I also think see. it's a but I also think it's a setup. And so I try, I often say, you know, I don't care what you call it. You could call it purple cow for all I care. It's not about the name or the label that you give it. It's about what's actually happening in our community, what's actually happening in our classrooms. And so I don't care whether you call it diversity. I don't care whether you call it belonging. I want to actually do the work that's going to benefit the children that are in our care and the children who we are committed to supporting in our community. And let me ask you that real quick, because it's it's a great uh, point that you make, and it certainly lies at the heart of what I've tried to do as an educator. Do you feel that when people genuinely understand that you care, they are much more open to the notion of, of whatever it is that you're talking about in terms of the community. Like you said, you could call it purple cow. You can call it DEIB. You can call it D whatever at the heart of it. Would you agree that caring really sets the tone for people's acceptance? I think it really does. And that's why I'm always a fan of having actual conversations. I'm not a fan of email exchanges or anonymous Instagram accounts or not really communicating with people because I think so much is lost in electronic communications when you are not actually speaking to each other. And so I invite people who have any sort of concerns about the work that we're doing around diversity, equity, and inclusion to come into my office and let's have a very real, open and honest conversation about what the concerns are. And I will say the majority of those conversations go really well. I'm not saying that we walk out of the my office locked arm in arm singing Kumbaya and every we're on the exact same page for every single issue. But I do think that after having an open and honest conversation, people often understand that we do care about every single student in our community, whether they, quote unquote, believe in anti-racism or not, which I put it in quotes because I'm not sure that's something you believe in or don't. But when people, it's typically people just want to be heard. People want to be understood. They want to know that you as as an administrator 
care about their child. So I think you're spot on. Love it. And I always appreciate when you say that I'm right. I'm you know, going to put that <laughs> and keep that. That happens a lot. For future reference. And yes, to be clear, you heard Ms. Jones mention me as Dr. Carol. Uh, she does not miss an opportunity to make sure that people remember that I'm Dr. Carol. It is part of what makes our community what it is and our friendship what it is. All right. This is the last thing I'm going to get you out on with. And what would you say if you were running a a symposium, you were facilitating a panel of new families who were entering schools, be it private, public, whatever, and they had questions about making sure that the place that they were going into was diverse and inclusive and how they might act um, to make sure that it is. So what advice might you give to that gathering of families? You know, there are a number of different things. One thing that we, you and I often share with our parents when they've joined our community is that they need to get involved before there's a problem. And so that is definitely something that I share year after year that people, they need to make themselves known in the community and they need to be at the football game on a Friday night, even if they don't have a child who plays football or is interested in football. They need to go to the state of the school address. They need to go to a play that we are offering so that they get to know different um, aspects of the community before they need to call on somebody to complain about something that's happened to their child because those conversations are going to go much better if there's actually a relationship that's been established. So I think that is extremely important once you are part of the community. If you're exploring the community and you're in the admissions process, I wouldn't hesitate to ask some of those tougher questions. And a tough question could be, give me an example of something that happened in your community that did not meet your standards and talk to me about how your community or how you as administrators responded to that issue. And so you can see how they not only respond to that question, but you can also see how they worked through the issue that came up in their community. Because the reality is I would love to pretend that all of us exist in uh, schools that are like utopias and nothing ever goes wrong, but that's just not realistic. And we also know that's not realistic. Both you and I have teenagers um, and children. We know that children make mistakes and things happen in communities that don't always match up with the standards that you have for your community. And so there are times where discipline is necessary. There are times where Schools will invite families not to return. Um, and it's important for you or for families to understand how that school that they are potentially interested in responds to those types of situations. And I would say run for the hills if they refuse to answer the question, if they pretend like nothing happened, has ever happened, oh, that's such a great question. We've never had an issue like that in our community. I would run for the hills because they're they're not being truthful with you. Janine Jones, brilliant as always. I thank you for your time. 
Look forward to getting started on a new school year with you after you drop your second and final baby off at college. We are wishing Avery the best. So, Jenny, I appreciate you. Well, thank you. I appreciate you. And I am very excited to watch your, your, well, he's not a baby anymore because he's taller than you, but watch yes. your, uh, watch your icicle play this year on the court. I will be a fan of his and they're cheering him on. So thank you for having me on. You just made him smile because you mentioned him on my podcast. So <laughs> absolutely. You know, he he's one of my favorite. to be your favorite. All righty. That's right. That's bye, right. All right. Bye bye. Thank you. Short Dean's office this week after a great interview with Janine Jones. I need to have a conversation with Florida Education Commissioner Manny Diaz Jr. to better understand how you could teach an AP Psych course when you cannot include any lessons on gender identity or sexuality. Seems it would be pretty important for a student's psychosis, how they view themselves, if they had a better understanding of gender and sexual orientation and identity. These laws that strike at the humanity of students continue to be a problem in Florida. And I hope that we're able to find some resolution soon for the sake of the children. On the honor roll, I wanna welcome Simone Biles back to competition after a two year break. In her first time back on the match, she won the Core Hydration Classic in Illinois and has qualified for U.S. Nationals. I think I can speak for all sports fans say we are happy to see her back after taking time to address her mental health and being a model, a continued role model for what it is to not ignore your mental health, but to address it so that you can come back stronger. We look forward to seeing Simone Biles return to her championship form. Before I go, I want to give a quick shout out to my friend, my people's serial entrepreneur, April Watkins. She made sure she delivered a much needed shipment of shea butter from her new honey body collection and spending a lot of time in the pool this summer. Anybody who knows about that pool life knows that when you get out, ultimately your skin will beg for moisture. So I was need of a local shea butter supplier. April stepped up and stepped in and I'm using the product now and I really enjoy it. So thank you, April. Check out that collection, the honeybodycollection.com. Shea butter comes in all sorts of flavors from pound cake to champagne. And there's other great products that you can take care of your whole body from nails to head to toes thehoneybodycollection.com, my friend, April Watkins. That's it for me for week number two. Looking forward to week number three. We're going to talk about admissions, not only at the college level, but at the elementary and middle school levels as well. Because these days, if you are not in the right position early on, it will make it much 
more difficult to get to where you want to be later down the line. I'll see you next week. John Carroll signing out on Taking Notes. The views expressed by John Carroll and his guest in the preceding podcast are solely that of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers, companies, or other associated parties.